0: You know, we're not saying the Oedipus Complex doesn't exist or that it doesn't apply to some patients. We're just saying it's not the only model. model.
1: Today is Tuesday, February 2nd. The year is 2021. This is No Easy Answers, and I am your host, Jules Taylor. Today, like all days, I have no easy answers for you. Well, thank you for tuning in from wherever you happen to be listening. My name is Jules Taylor, and this is No Easy Answers, and I'm very excited to bring to you a conversation that I had recently with a practicing psychotherapist named Daniel Barker. Now, for reasons pertaining to confidentiality, that's about all I can tell you about him. Daniel and I agreed to not disclose his location, his practice, and honestly, Daniel isn't even his real name. So I know all this might sound strange, But the question we're talking about today is, is psychology a pseudoscience? Now, who better to talk to about this sort of thing than a practicing psychologist? But in order to bring to bear this discussion, we'll have to broach some topics of mental health, trauma, and Daniel cites some specific examples he's encountered with some of his patients, and as you'll hear in our conversation, we're undermining some key tenets of psychology. So I hope that explains why Daniel preferred to keep this interview anonymous. And I hope that disclaimer functions as a trigger warning up front for some of our listeners. So just two things before we get to our interview. One is that I've tried to provide some helpful links in the show notes to some of the books or thinkers mentioned in our conversation. So when we mention, you know, authors like Jill Deleuze or Michel Foucault or Richard Rorty, check out the show notes for more information on all of that. And the other thing is, I don't want to discourage anyone from seeking therapy or seeking guidance from a licensed mental health professional. This conversation is one forged purely out of curiosity, and I am in no way endorsing anyone from not seeking the help of a licensed mental health professional. Therapy is broadly very helpful for most people who receive it, and so please do not take anything said in this episode as something meant to discourage anyone from seeking therapy. All right, all that's done. Let's get to the interview with Daniel Barker. All right, so welcome to No Easy Answers. I'm really happy to have you here, Daniel. And uh, I've got a few questions for you on psychoanalysis, and what we're talking about today is, is psychoanalysis a pseudoscience? And uh, the way you and I met is you tweeted something and you said you'll have your doctorate in clinical psychoanalysis within the next year, but you've come to the conclusion that psychoanalysis is absolutely a pseudoscience, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work so i've I've been really curious about this because uh you know some of my background is my girlfriend is a therapist, and so she basically does therapy in the front room all day working from home during this pandemic and so I overhear a lot of conversations about uh being trauma informed and a lot of conversations about uh dialectal behavioral therapy and narrative therapy and all that sort of stuff right um and it, me being the person that I am, I read a lot of, um, I guess, you know, like Foucault has been somebody I've been reading, and it seems like Foucault is somewhat of a, uh, like an antagonistic character to the world of psychoanalysis for various reasons. So let's talk about psychoanalysis as a pseudoscience. one argument or criticism of psychoanalysis I've heard is the degree to which accuracy is needed in most scientific disciplines, it seems sort of impossible to be psychoanalytically accurate because that would be just called mind reading. And, you know, one might argue that accuracy, at least in psychotherapy, isn't something that's overly championed because it isn't absolutely necessary to be effectual. Um, so. Daniel, maybe you can help us out here. Can you speak to the ways psychoanalysis sort of comports with scientific methods and perhaps some of the ways that psychoanalysis deviates from scientific methods?
0: Yeah. Um, accuracy is a funny place for psychoanalysis because uh, it's not quite sure what it's doing. Um, is it creating like a shared narrative between the patient and the therapist or is it directly reflecting back and working with the patient's like content, what they describe to you in a session, and then it's kind of like a uh, uh, it's a c- critical hermeneutic psychoanalysis, and that it doesn't assume that what's happening at the surface level is the sort of reality, sort of speak. Um, so there's always this like ear of like like listening and being like, okay, that's what the person says happened. I wonder what really happened, um, but. To kind of cut through all that noise, you know, I think the easy answer is um, accuracy to an extent is very important for psychoanalysis. Um, Freud's whole method originally was like interpretation. So he worked with these patients. They had symptoms and they weren't able to verbalize or like explain how they got these symptoms. Uh, And Freud would ask them to free associate. The idea was, you know, if you talked about this stuff enough, uh, it would release the energy bound up in the symptom. We don't have to get all the energy model stuff. But uh, and then he found most patients can't free associate because they're worried about saying or doing certain things. So he would make interpretations. You know, I think your symptom is X, Y and Z because these reasons. And he would have these grand interpretations. Um. Sometimes those were accurate, sometimes they're not. So why I go there to answer the question is, like, if someone's on the couch with me um, and they're telling me about their life, and now I'm in the spot where I'm supposed to figure out what to do to help them, um, you know, I probably want to listen closely to the story they're telling me and stick to what they're telling me um, and just stick to the facts that they've given me. Uh, if, if I deviate from that, I'll probably... Uh, I guess what we would call rupture the therapeutic rapport. So mm. if I deviate from the facts or if I'm not accurate to what they're telling me, they're kind of going to feel disconnected from me and they're not going to actually want to work with me to to find out what's going on underneath the hood. Um, I think that's a, a few different answers that could go in a few different directions, but I think the, the bottom line is like, on the one hand, you don't have to be accurate. If you're making a deep interpretation into someone's unconscious content, it probably doesn't really have too much to do with the surface level or the latent content, what they're telling you superficially. On the other hand, you want to stick to someone's uh, someone's words and stories and not deviate too much because it can be really off-putting to give people these deep interpretations all the time. Um, now, accuracy as far as science, um, that's tricky because, you know, like these scientific models outside of psychoanalysis want to gather all the facts, you know, like a, a psychology model will want to gather all the facts of someone's history and say, you know, uh, that's kind of medical science. If someone has this condition, then the, uh, the studies and the research and the practice show that this treatment best... Uh, treats this condition so just use this treatment so that's the point of a diagnosis the idea is like you can't accurately diagnose someone if you don't have all the facts right psychoanalysis doesn't always work with diagnoses um, there are ways to do it there's like a psychodynamic diagnostic model but for the most of the mostly we're not too concerned about accuracy in a strange way um, we're concerned about inaccuracy and the way the relationship forms between the, uh, the therapist and the patient. Um, so th- that's a conflict, I think, between psychoanalysis um, and, you know, pre- prevailing scientific models that really focus on accuracy.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I question as far as the repeatability and dependability on results. You know, it, and I wonder how we got to a point where if this person is showing or presenting X, Y, and Z, then you can diagnose them as, say, bipolar disorder, just as an example, right? So if this patient is showing X, Y, and Z, and you can diagnose them as bipolar, which that's the point of a diagnosis is to give you a sort of set plan as to how to treat them. Um, you know, we're not dealing with like very self-evident data points at this point, right? So we're not dealing with like anything absolutely concrete. We're just dealing with observable behavior and facts that the patient is telling you as they perceive them, right? Because they're just, they're informing you and you have to stick to those facts but there's always like the inaccuracies of the way the mind recounts things, the way the mind actively forgets, or the way, the way the mind uh, inaccurately recalls things. Um, so so i so I do worry about repeatability and uh, dependability uh, on the results. And maybe you could speak to how within this discipline, uh, we've come to rely on certain methods that can give us a repeatability and dependability on results uh, when all of this seems so nebulous and sort of like inexact, you know?
0: Yeah. I think the interesting thing is (laughs) psychoanalysis excels at looking at uh, the inaccuracies and distortions and conflicts and errors and glitches, all those things like the Freudian slip. Or, how, you know, depending on what environment you work in, you'll work with a patient and they'll report one thing. But if you have observation on them, like in a hospital setting, you can see how their report directly conflicts with their behavior. And then you got to think, like, what's going on in there that, like, nine out of 10 people see A, but they come into the session and report B. There's some sort of disconnect there. Um, So, like, psychoanalysis focuses on those dis discontinuities um which is how you can get some level of repeatability i think um just through continued observation that like cuz we start off with this idea that the mind is already this like apparatus that pulls together and creates a narrative out of all these fragments and that it's not really like um this hard and true and fast reality machine like we're not taking in uh like numinal data and like rearranging it perfectly and then producing back like maybe years ago philosophy philosophers thought we could do that you know like thinking like rorty what's Uh uh and like the mirror metaphysics of the mirror um but you know we don't do that so that's that's where lacan excels i'm not very good with lacan um and i'm not really a lacanian but right when Lacan and the and the kind of the Marxist strain of Lacan, they talk about, like, yeah, Zizek puts it as, like, uh, conceptualize the gap. So they're all about gaps, gaps in memory, gaps in narrative, uh, discontinuities, uh, you know, where things break down. Um, as far as, like, repeatability, you know, different, uh, like, sub-schools of psychoanalysis have different ways of trying to test and account for, like, uh, actually being able to run the same treatment again and get the same results. Uh, I don't know if a lot of them succeed as much as they'd like to. Like, the really hardcore people, maybe they were trained as psychologists in, like, the 60s and 70s, and then they got training as a psychoanalyst. They'll really stick to, like, the empirical stuff. Like, uh, sometimes they'll have video cameras in the session, which uh, I know you're reading Anti-Oedipus, so there's that button right. there about uh the patient who wants to bring the tape recorder in and the analyst says no, but uh, so some people have video tape um, and they'll look back and say like, oh, when I made this intervention, the patient seemed to react to it negatively. Um, So if I have this goal next time, I want to use a different intervention. So that's like very simple. And if you understand that, like a diagnosis, I, I talk to them, talk about a diagnosis as being like hyper real. It's not like, Real in itself, you know, there is no natural category known as bipolar two. You know, people aren't born bipolar two, Um, that's just a label. But you can generate consistency by using labels, um, just as like reference points. So, if someone fits the label close enough, you just have to be aware of that. Be like, all right, I'm using this kind of heuristic label. Um, if I have like 10 patients that kind of fit into this mold. And we don't even have to think the mold is real. It doesn't have to be like a naturalist model. You know, if if I have like five criteria and these 10 patients hit four out of five of those criteria and I tend to do X and it works with them and I tend to do Y and it doesn't, then that gives you at least some repeatability. You know, the the hardcore psychologists and scientists aren't going to like that because it's not like, uh, you know, it's not really tested very well, but... Right. Uh, kind of intuitively, it works. And I'll give you an example. Like, um, <clears throat> let's see, let's see, schizophrenic patients. Um, well, there's a lot of variance in that diagnosis itself. But, well, so schizophrenic people, and I'll put the aside that, like, people who, for them, stimulation, they, they, they put a lot of energy into keeping stimulation out of their system. Um, so they're kind of closed off, quiet. They get in on the couch. They don't want to talk too much. Um, if you try to talk to these people too much or if you try to make um, like grand interpretations or ask too many questions, they'll get overstimulated and they'll leave or, mm-hmm. or they'll kind of lash out at you and, and yell at you. Um, so like the scientific or the data there for me is like, OK, when a patient meets these criteria based on my judgment, I know probably don't want to ask them too many questions. I want to just sit with them and see what they talk about when they're ready to talk. So some of that's intuitive. Some of that you can measure and test. Um, But that's, you know, kind of why I call it a pseudoscience and non pejoratively, but I'll I'll say more about that later. Sure. So um, let's
1: talk a little bit about your studies though, man, because I, all, everything you're saying is really interesting. And I'm, uh, I'm curious as to, at what point in your educational uh, journey did you start to question, uh, you know, or did you start to posit that psychoanalysis may be a pseudoscience? And, you know, what what led you to sort of observing things from that lens?
0: Yeah, yeah, good question. I think it was in the last year. Um, I think the straw that broke the camel's back was... uh, I was watching a documentary about a cult. Um, I forget the name of the cult. The, the cult leader was Keith Raniere. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do, do you remember that one? Or? I know what
1: you're talking about. I don't know what the name of the documentary was, but Keith Raniere was, wasn't there like a celebrity that got caught up with that stuff too or something?
0: I think so. Yeah. It was a pretty big cult. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, I just there was a bit in it where uh, where he he was a real sadist and like a real mean guy. And he told one of his followers, I want you to run into that tree because he would get his followers to do whatever he wanted. And he would just like test their limits. That was actually part of the the uh, the cult was like pushing your limits. And uh, the person ran into a tree, but they flinched. And he would he was like, why are you resistant Mm. Wow. So and I thought like that's the pseudoscience cults operate on, but it's so effective is uh, anything you don't do that is in favor of the cult or the cult leader's command. It's on you and you've made some sort of grave error that you have to correct. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a little muddled. I have a few metaphors I always use. Um, So back when drawing blood was like the medical uh staple like the the go-to treatment where they would put leeches on you and draw blood <laughs> if if the patient died rather than say hey maybe we shouldn't keep drawing blood they would say oh we just didn't draw enough blood so it's like the logical error where you put the model before the facts and then you right. interpret the facts through the model which i think is called uh, no true scotsman and oh, they go yeah. into a bar and uh is a Scotsman drinking milk, big tough Scotsman or whatever, and the one guy says to the other, this I like, that couldn't be a Scotsman. No, no, no true Scotsman would drink milk. Rather than the scientific way it would be like, oh, we have to adjust our model or idea of what a Scotsman is. Scotsmen now drink milk. So that has to be in the definition. But my other metaphor is, you know, there's the, the blood drawing one. Um but then there's, you know, people used to think the moon was made out of cheese. And then we got up there and dug into the moon and it was made out of rock. But then if you really believe the moon was made out of cheese, you would just say, well, you just didn't dig deep enough. If you dig in a foot more, you would have found that cheese. So it's always (laughs) like this. It's the same thing with cults where uh, where it's always the resistance of the cult follower. Oh, you just didn't follow the program close enough. If you had Mm -hmm. just taken seminar two and four, um, you know, and followed my lead, you would have been fine. So it's always this idea of, like, moving the goalposts, adjusting the uh, definition, but putting the model before everything. And psychoanalysis does that, you know? Um, So I thought, like, how many times have I heard in my analysis or in my classes, like, why are you resistant to that? Like, years ago, I was being critical of some concepts. I think the death drive. I used to be critical of the death drive, and then I've come back around to finding it helpful as a concept. And I was kind of exploring some of my criticism in a class, and someone said, Daniel, why are you so resistant to the death drive? I thought, I'm I'm giving a critique, you know, you can't subsume a critique into a resistance. Like uh, and and that's what you know, psychoanalysis is in danger of is constantly deferring, making the analysis longer, saying it's just the resistance. So, in other words, there's a mechanism built into it where it blames the other person rather than looks at how it can improve its models so that's why I came to the fact that it's a pseudoscience is if your belief system or your model of gathering knowledge um, first and foremost blames someone else so that it can preserve itself, then it's incentivizing and will tend towards becoming a religion or a dogma that's when you uh, that's when you protect the holy scripture, and anyone who doesn't believe in the scripture is like a bad heretic, you know. Whereas science, science says, you know, um, if I tell my follower to run into a tree and they don't want to run into it, I have to adjust and think like, huh, maybe that's not the best thing to ask someone. So cults in psychoanalysis have a tendency to protect their model by, like, projecting criticism into the outside. And that's really all Deleuze and Guattari were saying in Anti Oedipus. Well, not all. I don't want to reduce the beautiful text, but just they talk about uh, Freud's um, analysis interminable. So that's like a a debated concept in psychoanalysis. Does psychoanalysis last forever, a whole patient's life? Or is there a time where you say, okay, we've done all the work we can? You should either see someone else or figure it out yourself. Um, And a lot of people lean towards, Uh, no, there's still things to be analyzed here. And to me, that sounds a lot like, no, we still have to draw some more blood. So. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I mean,
1: I I think that rolls nicely into the next question, actually. Um, And and it's interesting that you mentioned the Keith Raniere thing. Um, I, I just looked this up. It's that documentary. Was it called Seduced that you watched?
0: I don't think that was it, but that's probably a good one. I should watch. Let me. It was the oh, it N- was N- seduced. Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah, it's that nxivm cult. If I'm, if that's how yeah, you say.
0: they pronounce it nexium.
1: Nexium, isn't that cool? <laughs> wow! Wow! It's like a uh, so cultist, right? That was like uh, Elon Musk and Grimes' uh, second choice for their kid's name. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's um, so, <laughs> so um. As you were saying before, man, one of the critiques of psychoanalysis is that, it, you know, it seeks to blame the psychological issues within the person, or it, it seeks to to blame the person for the psychological issues, the person undergoing therapy. It's almost as if there's like a presupposition in psychoanalysis that the problem is ascribed into the nature of the person, and it and it seeks to correct that perceived problem, and so, Very interesting. I thought like narrative therapy, someone told me there was a mantra um, in that, which is the the mantra for narrative therapy being, you are not the problem. The problem is the problem. And actually that was, um, I don't know if you know who Todd May is. I had an interview with Todd May and he was telling me about his wife as a therapist and she engages in narrative therapy. And so he's actually the guy who told me the the mantra of like, you are not the problem. The problem is the problem. So. Can you maybe speak to the ways psychoanalysis works in a service of hegemonic forces? And, and and what what I mean by that to clarify is that um, you know, Foucault thought that like psychoanalysis was akin to prisons. To the degree that both prisons and psychoanalysis are behavioral or behavioral uh, rehabilitation. Like we're trying to change your behavior to something more desirable to fit into society. And, you know, with the whole like you, the problem lies within you. It's ascribed to your nature of being. It, it seems like, I mean, he really has a point in that, like, we're just trying to rehabilitate behavior to keep people in society, to keep them uh, to normatize or normalize their behavior to something more socially acceptable. Um, do you think psychoanalysis works in service of that sort of thing of sort of corralling everyone's behavior into neat and ordered socially desirable, um, uh, sort of ways or, um, I mean, maybe you could speak to psychoanalysis as it regards to like, as it pertains to Foucault or his writing?
0: Yeah, a lot in that question. Um, I'll do the thing politicians do where I'll start on my own uh, <laughs> topic and get there. Um, yeah, I know there's a lot there. so not, No, yeah. it's a great um, question. I love that you – sounds like your partner does narrative therapy and then Todd May's partner does narrative therapy. Right. It's a good coincidence because part of what actually can make psychoanalysis um, measurable and a little bit more scientific empirically is incorporating narrative therapy into it. Um, And, you know, I was going to talk about that at the end, you know, like how can psychoanalysis be scientific? It's with narrative therapy. Um, Mm. So how I measure change in my patients is based on the stories, the change in stories they tell me and themselves. And that's really all you can actually measure from a session is, is if you take notes after a session, you have your recollection and your understanding of their understanding and recollection of themselves. So it's right. like a hermeneutic, um, uh, what do they call that? Um, you get the idea. We don't have to use all the fancy terms, but sure, t- sure. it's my story about their story. Now over time, I'm writing this down and I have the notes. I can look at how their story about themselves changes and how their story about me changes. And I can also look at how my story about them changes too. Um, And there's a lot of ways you can do that. This is why psychoanalysis got mixed up with like literary theory. Um, I think that's actually one of the strengths of the Lacanian school was kind of mixing it with language to an extent. Um, So I'll just talk generally about just several patients, you know, sure. who I meet and their their story they tell me when they show up for the first session is basically I I'm bad and I can't do anything in this world and my only options are to hurt myself or or to just give up. Like people tell themselves negative stories where they're a useless bad character and everyone in the world's usually out to get them and at the same time better than them. And the more I work with these people, sometimes four five, six years, the stories they tell now are much more nuanced. And they're able to, just like in a movie, the characters they talk about in the room with me, whether I know they're real or not, accurate or not, because I don't know this guy's mom or this guy's sister, I can tell that they're attributing them a more rich inner world. So before the story might have been, my mom hates me. I know she hates me and, you know, there's, there's no way around that. She'll never really love me. And now maybe the story is, you know, I think some days my mom really doesn't like me. And I think other days, my mom actually really shows me that she cares. And, you know, that makes me feel X, Y, and Z. So the story gets richer and more complex, just like, you know, we watch a kid's cartoon. It's very concrete. We watch an adult movie that's like done by someone who's good at making movies. It's much more nuanced character. So, You can measure um, someone's narrative change, the language, what they bring in, what they leave out. And I think you can kind of use that as a tool across many different patients just to see how their stories change. So I actually love narrative therapy. Now, that gets me to the next point, this idea of you're not the problem, the problem is the problem. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned DBT, which kind of can go hand in hand with... uh, narrative theory dbt dialectical behavioral therapy so the dbt um motto is uh you you didn't cause this problem but you are the one you're the only one who can fix it um which is a little bit defeating a little bit defeatism or or fatalism or whatever but ultimately pragmatically i mean that's i think where you have to start um so i used i used to do activism is not the right word i used to do research for a nonprofit that was like um you know like progressivist leftist stuff i won't say anymore because i don't want people trying to find out who i used to work for but um you know they were somewhat effective in like the political field um but i just realized everyone was so burnt out on the other side you know they go to the seminars and the press conferences and they all look like energetic and they're so ready to fight for the cause. But behind the scenes, you know, everyone is really at each other's throats and it's high tension and everyone's irritable. Um, and I thought like, you know, people have to still do this stuff. People have to do nonprofit work or political activism work. But I thought like, you know, I really want to work with people because that seems like much more real to me. Um, you know, no political project's ever going to work if everyone's hurting themselves and, and dying young before they can really band together and be with each other. And, you know, if you get past that first hurdle where people aren't hurting themselves and so st- stuck in depression, um, then you have to help people learn to be with other people um, in a way that small differences don't make them infight all the time. So if it's one thing the left suffers from is constant infighting, over what feels like to me and, you know, other people will have different takes on this small differences. Um, so I kind of do that second motto, which is like, I actually agree. Yeah. The, you're not the problem. The problem is the problem, but we're the only ones that can start working on this. Um, mm. You know, it's a bit of a stretch, but that's some of what Guattari is getting at with uh, micro political or molecular revolutionary type stuff. Um, you know, The reality is our social system sucks. All social systems suck. Some suck less than others. I think someone said that about democracy. It's the (laughs) least terrible uh, whatever. Uh, Yeah. But we're never going to change anything on a big scale unless we start working in these little ways. Uh, I think people will say that's, you know, neoliberal and all that stuff. But I I know my skill set, and that's where I've decided to start. There was another question in there, though. I think I kind of just missed Um, probably one of them.
1: No, I mean, I I think you I think you covered it, man. You know, it's just um, I think that there's a greater sort of political lens or political angle that narrative therapy delivers, because instead of blaming the person for the problem, you kind of take a, a systemic critique approach. And show them that the problem is the problem, but the problem is the problem because society um, sort of dictates that this is something for you to feel uh, not normal about or not healthy about or um, maybe even psychologically sort of like reject that part of yourself internally. Um, and, And I think that, you know, narrative therapy can through maybe through Foucault or through uh, a sort of socially conscious political lens can shift the focus from the patient looking to place the blame internally to um, externalizing that blame uh, at the feet of society in the system. Um, and, and so I, I, I thought that was a, a cool thing because I, I had never thought about how, Uh, psychoanalysis could be a, or like in what way psychoanalysis could be a politically angled technique uh, for patients, so.
0: Yeah, well, that's a good point. Here's something I forgot is, I always work for my patients not to blame themselves, Um, but I also don't want them to just blame the outside either. And that's something Guattari says, I forget where, I haven't been able to find the quote again. You know, he he was an analyst and a, a social Activist, but he said we need to stray away from the humanist critique that it's the big bad outside that makes us bad, um, on the inside, you know, this idea because that's just like returning to like that, that uh, Richard Wordy is it first name Richard? Uh, uh, I think
1: it was Richard, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it sounds like uh, some Jean Jacques Rousseau kind of stuff that the that man is perfect and yet it's societal institutions that corrupt him or something.
0: Yeah, is saying we want to stay away from that because it's like a humanist mm. thing that like we can't have badness in us. So it's almost like a theological, like right. position that we're like uh, born and then original sin gets in. And but where that model comes from of like, I think some people do blame the patient. I think most people will say no, I don't do that. But another part of pseudoscience is saying the reasonable thing out loud and then. Doing that so you can continue doing the behavior that's actually destructive. So Mm. no one, if you ask any therapist, no therapist will ever say, yeah, I blame the patient. Right. You know, so like, (laughs) but some people do, which is not good. Drive theory, Freud's drive theory gets really distorted and misused and ends up being used to blame the patient. I'll explain drive theory in just like 30 seconds. Um, Okay. So he's coming from this medical model of the late 1800s, early 1900s of instincts and energy, but you don't have to buy into all the changes in science to believe or not believe it. Just the idea that a drive is like an insistent, inextinguishable force inside of us. And what that means just empirically is like thirst, hunger, sex, connection, all the things that no matter how much we get of it, we still need or want more. So until the day we die, we'll always have to keep eating and drinking and to some extent having some level of content. So drives, and this is kind of like Nietzsche, a drive is like a um, an instinct uh, that's made a little bit more personal to the body. So like the the instinct is to live, like a life instinct. And then it gets kind of um, partitioned off into all these, you know, hunger, thirst, sex, whatever. So drives can be sublimated and turned into thoughts. So thoughts are basically just higher order reflections or like cybernetic feedback arcs on uh, these impersonal instincts. So we don't have, you know, hunger. We, If we didn't have language, like if we were schizophrenic or autistic, or if we were perhaps like cognitively impaired, or if we were a baby, we don't have the thought of hunger. We have a hunger pain in our body, and it's a sensation. So Deleuze and Guattari talk about intensities. That's what they're talking about, is like Hmm. these pre-linguistic sensations that fill up our body and fill up our senses. Now, as we learn to use language, we learn to have thought, and we can translate body sensations into thoughts. So we get that hunger pain. It dissipates because we're able to have the thought, oh, I'm hungry. I should grab a burger or whatever we eat. Um, So then the idea is that for Freud, conflict is internal because these drives are in conflict with each other. So there's the drives to eat and stuff like that, which if the outside met those needs all the time, we'd be good. But then there are all kinds of other, drives that get distorted and screwed up. Like if I feel like I'm in danger and I need to protect myself, but then I have a second thought of like, or second impulse to be like, oh, but I don't want to, I want to protect myself, which might mean being violent, but I can't be violent in my in group because then everyone won't like me and I won't have access to the food or maybe they'll kill me. Mm -hmm. So these are like primitive, these are reconstructions of primitive thoughts, but the idea is that conflict is internal between instinctual drives and that because they're inexhaustible, inextinguishable, no matter how much the outside world meets our needs, there's always that internal push to want more. So that's kind of like a bastardized version of Lacan's desire. I say <laughs> bastardized because a Lacanian will listen to this and say, no, if you read seminar, this or that, it's blah, blah, blah. But, and I'm not a Lacanian, so I don't pretend to know right, that stuff, right. like, but the idea is, I it might sound a little reactionary, but uh, if even if we had all our needs met by society, there would still be something internal that pushes us to have conflict. Now, where psychoanalysis would come in is it says, great, we've met all our needs. How do we actually exist together as people with instincts and drives um, that are always going to keep us in conflict with ourselves and with others? That's why people call it a conflict theory. That's why the Marxism Uh, links in with it so well um crap where's that book i don't where did i put that book so i'm not going to explain anymore i'll just tell people to read the book i think it's called the capitalist unconscious by Mm. uh well i'll i'll put it in the comments later or something
1: cool yeah send me a link afterwards i'll be happy to include that um i i'm curious on um and i i didn't send this over in any, like the questions that I, the potential questions that I wrote out. Um, but are you familiar with uh landmark education or back in the seventies, it was called Est. It was, not uh, no.
0: um,
1: there's a, uh, if you look this stuff up, it's the, it, I mean, if you look up any YouTube videos on it or whatever, it will really seem like it's a cult. A lot of people online talk about it like it's a cult. Um, but basically, it's a seminar that people go to. You pay money for this stuff. And basically, in the 70s, it was called Est. It was uh, called...
0: Uh, oh, I do know Est. Yes, I've yes. heard of that. Yep.
1: Right. Est turned into Landmark Education after the guy who designed Est sold off that intellectual property and they rebranded it as Landmark. And uh, so if you know about what Est is... Um, they, they've tried to remain as analogous to Est um, as they can uh, uh, today, and so what that is, it's like a few days of sitting in a basement with about 150 to 200 people, and these folks go over what I think is a, a, a. It's partly psychoanalytically derivative, and it's partly philosophy derivative because a lot of what you're saying about how like hey, you know, I this person, this patient tells me a story and then I write down their story. But really what I'm doing is writing down my interpretation of their story. Basically within Landmark, one of the first things they tell you is that like, hey, you have the present moment and you have the past, but the past should not be affecting you as if it's in the present and so they try to make that distinction. They try to tell you that, like, your story is like the story that you tell yourself, and that story is not yourself. Um, so I, I just I bring that up because it seems like what they're actually selling you, uh, the people who run Landmark, when they sign you up for the stuff, is accomplishing years of therapy within a weekend. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious to if you're familiar with Ast. Um, I'm curious as to what your thoughts on this may be, because I, I know the psychotherapy is a delicate, uh, type of work and you don't want to do anything to your patients that would result in anything less than something that would be ultimately helpful, uh, Mm -hmm. to them. Um, but it seems like this sort of crash course in therapy through landmark, um, I mean, and and my background too is I, I've gone to a couple of these forums, um, and and I've seen some of the breakdowns that happen during this, and it seems like uh, it's a, I, I want to use the word violent, like it's a sort of sort of violent psychological disassembly that happens yeah. at times. Uh, it's a bit ruthless. It's a bit like we're going to hurt your feelings intentionally so you can feel that and separate from your ego. Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts around, like, what a more direct contact psychologically, uh, psychoanalytically breaking down and reassembling short weekend seminar thing. Uh, if you have any, uh, I don't know, uh, thoughts around that methodology, because, uh, I, I, Landmark has done some good things for me, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it was a negative experience. It's done some good things for me, but I know that, um, it's funny cuz like you mentioned like my my partner is a is a therapist and and so when i tell her about the landmark thing she's like oh i don't you know dude like that's that's kind of short and violent and quick and that's not the way therapy's supposed to go mm-hmm. um uh and so i so i wonder if you have any thoughts on that sort of uh on landmark or est or any of these uh things that i've mentioned
0: yeah est is interesting you know, it most reminds me of Americans, America's ego psychology. Uh, maybe I'm a little biased, but I tend to look at most of these things as just stemming from some some sort of psychoanalytic sub school. Um, but you know, est will work for people who est works for, which sounds mm-hmm. like a like a redundant, stupid. Like, why bother saying that? But it's like. Uh, uh, s- patient selection is a huge part of what can make a therapy look effective or ineffective. Like, so the, the people who end up being interested in and going there might be people who are predisposed to being able to handle that kind of direct, like attack. It almost feels attacking sometimes. And and I think they would uh, talk about it. You know, that's my ego trying to defend itself, perceiving it as an attack, but right. Right. I always say, you know, well, we developed this thing called the ego and, you know, <laughs> it's here. It serves some sort of function. Um, uh, it's like, you know, we don't attack the gallbladder. Is that the one we don't need? What's the one we don't need? The organ we don't right, need? Right, right, right. <laughs> we don't attack that just because you yeah, don't yeah. need it. It's in there. Yeah. Um, but no, I think it seems like a like a redundancy, but like things like Est will work for people predisposed uh for to to enjoy things like est just like psychoanalysis will work with some people but it might not work with others where the pseudoscience comes is when if est were to say it works with everyone if everyone were just to try it hard enough mm. you know i think you have to put limits and boundaries on your model of knowledge and treatment and be able to say like oh there's some people that are better candidates for this and some people who are worse. And if we want to be ethical, we have to take the people who are better candidates and actually turn away the people who are worse. So we might not want like, uh, like someone who's like really self-critical and su- suicidal and very prone to impulsive behavior to go to an est and get dismantled and rebuilt because they might not handle the rebuilding process and they might hurt themselves. I don't know if right. that's the case at all. You know, maybe they have data that says it's good for people like that. But one, I, I'll have to find the paper, but one really good research paper that stuck with me my entire career was just that um, basically all therapy models are just about as effective if they're run by someone who's trained well and can apply the model well. And like what that means is like good at EST will be bad CBT. Bad DBT will always be beat by good CBT. Um, good psychoanalysis will always beat bad DBT. You know all the permutations therein. So the idea is just like good therapy is good therapy and bad therapy is bad therapy. And when people like to play the therapy wars of like, oh CBT is more effective. No, DBT is more effective. No, you have to do this if they have trauma and you can't do this treatment. It's like ultimately. People like cherry pick. Like they'll they'll pick like bad CBT and compare it to to good psychoanalysis, um, and that's actually in the criticism. The scientific criticism is, you know, a lot of the CBT people were putting out this this research and said, look how effective CBT is, cognitive behavioral therapy, especially compared to psychodynamics or psych- psychoanalysis. And then some people went in and looked at the like the actual um, experiments, and they were like, wait a minute you have fully trained CBT people doing CBT and then you have fully trained CBT people reading psychoanalysis in a week and then trying to apply psychoanalysis. That's not fair. You know, that's not, you're not a psychoanalyst. So I think it's a long way of saying like, you know, EST will work if that's something you want to work. Um, or if you're fit for that, you know, um, cycle or if, if you go and it doesn't work, you should be able to leave. The, the scary pseudoscience part is if EST person doesn't respect the patient being like, okay, I'm opting out. And instead says, no, you have to stay. And if you just try hard enough, it'll work. That's the unethical thing.
1: Mm. Good answer. Really cool, man. Um, so I'll say I, I've never been to therapy, man, but I imagine that some therapeutic techniques are just kind of clever workarounds. And and what I mean by that, uh, as like an example, is that let's say you have a a woman who's a patient who always has like at three in the afternoon, a sort of a shooting sense of anxiety because she feels like she left her curling iron on at home. And so I've heard that, you know, maybe a a good therapist would be like, hey, I, I know you're experiencing Anxiety in the afternoon. You always worry about your curling iron. I want you to do this in the morning when you get up and you go curl your hair, um, take the curling iron and put it in your purse and take that to work with you. Um, So that person can then look at the curling iron and understand that if that anxiety persists, um, then it really wasn't the curling iron. And if it does work, then problem solved, right? Um, So I guess what I'm asking is like since we're we're talking about is uh psychoanalysis a pseudoscience um do you agree that a certain amount of psychoanalysis or general therapy is rooted in less of a science and maybe more in the clever workarounds
0: that's a really good question um yeah i guess so i mean i guess it depends on what we mean by like science so like that intervention is like a very behavioral intervention. Um, I used to be a waiter, and my table asked me, what do you do when you're not waiting? you in school? I said, yeah, I'm studying psychoanalysis. And they started laughing. They said, we're all behaviorists. And they told me a joke. They said, that uh, a man can't sleep. Uh, he he's, keeps having a nightmare that there's a monster under his bed. The psychoanalyst sees him for three or four years and learns all about what the monster could be. Uh, he doesn't get any better. So he goes to a behaviorist. The behaviorist says, cut the cut the uh, the bed the legs of the bed off. You won't have nightmares anymore. because <laughs> there's no room for the monster to be. So I think that's that is a funny joke that illustrates the difference. Um, so the second one's a workaround. psychoanalysis' strength is if the patient wants to understand, why they're anxious about the curling iron as opposed to someone else. Like, here's something I would say to a patient if they brought that to me. Um, I'd say, you know, what's what's got you so anxious about that? So I almost downplay their anxiety. I I have a little bit, I validate, but I have a little bit of fun kind of invalidating them just to get a little motion going. Say, well, anybody would be anxious. Well, I can think of some patients I've worked with who... uh, wouldn't care. They'd be able to go the whole day and they'd be able to tell themselves, ah, it'll be fine. When I get home, I'll figure it out. What makes you not like that? And, you know, if they take offense to that, I'll say, I'm not saying you should be like that. I'm just curious what is different in your life that makes you anxious as opposed to Johnny, who might be in the same situation, but not actually be anxious. Is that something you are curious about? If they're curious about it, we can explore it. If they're not curious about it, Perhaps I'll just give them the simple uh, run around and say, well, if you really want to, if you don't want to learn about that and you really just want to get rid of the anxiety, you know, don't curl your hair or, uh, you know, bring put it in your purse and bring it with you. Um, so if the person wants to get interested in, like, why am I anxious where someone else might not be, um, then we can talk about it. And that's where the process really happens, the therapeutic process um you know you usually this is just me projecting theory onto this usually in a case like that someone's really anxious about something else and the curling iron stands in as a little symbol for what they're really anxious about um so years ago my girlfriend traveled across the country to china um for reasons i won't talk about but uh so i was left to take care of the dogs And I had so much anxiety about my little dogs. They're they're little guys, like little handheld dogs. And um, I, looking back, realized that, you know, it's normal to have some anxiety, but that a lot of my anxiety was just about the unknown and was actually worried about her being overseas and being healthy. And so I projected it. (laughs) It's the story I told my analysts once where I was like, I was like, I was trimming this plant and I just started crying. I don't know why. No, I put the the plant had died and I put it in the trash and I started bawling my eyes out. And I was like, I'm not sad about this plant at all. I don't care. And she kind of was like, well, sounds like you're projecting some feelings onto the plant that have to do with a lot of other stuff. And I was like, duh, like, of course, of course, that's it. Um, (laughs) So, you know, science behaviorism will claim it's more scientific than psychoanalysis. And that's the funny thing about how you can manipulate goals and data. Because uh, if if my goal is to get the patient not to have anxiety about the curling iron, and the patient is having anxiety about the curling iron, and my intervention is take the curling iron with you to work, and then the patient stops reporting uh, or reports that they no longer have anxiety about the curling iron, I have 100% effectiveness on that intervention, and I got feedback, and it works, and I have evidence. If I do that with 1,000 patients, I have proof. Well, I guess you don't really prove anything in science. I have really strong evidence to indicate that telling people not to do this thing is effective. Well, that seems really lame, because maybe you haven't really changed the this. The patient, or help them with their anxiety. You've just changed something on the surface, but on paper, it looks really scientifically uh, valid, you know. And of course, a smart person will say this is bad science because it's not um, testable, or maybe it didn't really change. Um, but I do think that happens on a big scale. That a lot of what looks like really good science is just kind of setting setting the uh, setting the standards low. And then doing something really simple and then making it look bigger than it is in your in your conclusion. <laughs> right, right. It's a paper tiger thing, man. Just really yes. wow. Yeah, that's a that's
1: a really interesting. Um, I've never thought about that, which is part of why I was so excited to talk to you about. And I've got something else to chew on now is sort of you know, do, do the results from behavioral therapy on paper appear to be more inside more scientific or more effective when really it's just a surface level thing. Yeah, that's that's really that's really interesting. Great
0: answer on that. Um, Yeah, and I'll be fair; it can go the opposite way. Psychoanalysis is really known for um, just writing these beautiful case reports, and then you ask the patient, like, and the patient's like, "No, none of that really happened." So bullshit goes both ways. I'll be fair. Yeah. (laughs) All right.
1: So just a couple more questions on this, man. Um, And you can correct me if I'm mistaken on this, Um, Mm -hmm. but I've gathered from you Know the background on this is that like my partner being a therapist and being someone that works uh with patients and does teletherapy all day. Um, and he, my unemployed ass is in the other room doing podcasts and trying not to listen in on this stuff, right? So um so one day she all of a sudden starts studying trauma, mm-hmm. and she gets so interested in this, right? And 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 trauma is maybe the center of her research at this point. Um, But she told me that like, you know, she went through graduate school and stuff and uh, really they didn't teach her anything about trauma. And then when she started looking at trauma and researching that, it really sort of quilted the rest of her therapeutic knowledge. Um, And so now she's very emphatic about uh, taking a trauma informed lens to her practice um, and there are a number of books on this, which we have, and I've looked through and read some of, um, like The Body Keeps a Score by uh, Bessel van der Kolk. Or, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, Trauma Stewardship by Connie Burke and Dernute Lipsky. Um, I, and I think these books do an excellent job of detailing the way trauma is physically held by the body. Um And self-care is needed in in the treatment of trauma in order to avoid the effects of vicarious trauma. So you being a therapist, if you deal with somebody in crisis, part of you takes on part of that trauma yourself. It's called vicarious trauma. Um, But do you feel that trauma is not given the primacy it deserves in psychotherapist education programs? Good
0: question. I hear a lot about trauma. And as much as I hear about trauma, I also hear from my colleagues that, yeah, you we don't have a clear enough idea of what that means or how to apply it or how to integrate it. Um, I have a colleague that uh, well, the the hospital I work at changed locations and got bigger, and they took on all this new staff, including a trauma specialist. So before you know, the last few months we had no trauma specialist, and. It was just regular therapists trying to handle trauma, which they'll do the best they can, but that means it is secondary to the other things, the other mental health conflicts going on. Um, I had a colleague who actually did research looking at the data, um, you know, because we take, like, survey data on the way in and on the way out about, like, symptoms and thoughts and et cetera. And her research showed that the the residents in the hospital who got more trauma care, uh, did better on their other mental health conflicts than the ones who didn't. So given she had a small population to work with and her surveys are self-report. So they're not always, there's a lot of variables that go in there, but so it could, could be, you know, just not strong enough, but I think intuitively, and I said this to her, I said, that kind of sounds like just common sense that you'd want to focus on someone's trauma to understand the rest of their mental health. I I think the trauma model is really important. This idea that a lot of our symptoms are, I use this word all the time, maladaptive coping mechanisms for these things that we've gone through that were overstimulating to us. However, that is one challenge of trauma model is like people use trauma all different kinds of ways. Like I do a trauma assessment every time I have a new patient at the hospital. And, um, I've had kids Well, I asked straight it, have, have you, have you ever had any trauma in your life? Do, do you know what that word means or what, what what do you think that means? And I've had people say, yeah, my, my parents were mean to me, which for them is traumatic. You know, I'm not going to say it's not traumatic, And then I've had people say, yeah, I was raped and it's like, those are both trauma. Are we going to tell someone they're not traumatic? You know, like. Also, at the same time, our intuition says one of those is more severe than the other. So it becomes like a clinical decision of like, what do we consider trauma and what is not trauma, but still uncomfortable and wasn't healthy for them growing up. So I think there's a lot of research to do there and a lot of tightening up of of the definition of trauma that could be really helpful. Ultimately, I think the idea, though, that um, well, a psychoanalysis started with trauma theory, basically that these these girls um, were sexually assaulted, were, were raped or touched inappropriately by their by their relatives, their father or someone else. And then the big conflict within early psychoanalysis and then within social work and psychoanalysis going forward was that uh, Freud totally downplayed the reality of these girls' sexual assault and built the uh, seduction theory or this idea that no, they weren't really assaulted. It was their, their sexual instincts that they felt so uncomfortable with that they, that they uh, couldn't come to grips with. So they developed all these symptoms and that it was a fantasy. So that is um, something psychoanalysis has obviously stepped away from. I mean, there are certain, there certainly are people who have fantasies about these things that have never had any trauma. Um, and that gets in their way, but, you know, it's, trauma represents reality. Um, I guess I'll just end on that. So, Well, yeah, I mean,
1: uh, you know, whether you drown in the ocean or you drown in a puddle, you, you're still dead. You're still drowned, right? <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah. And and so I, uh, so I wondered, um you know like I so when I talk about having kids with uh with my partner right i I try to tell her that no matter what we do we're gonna fuck our kids up um and and I mean that in the most loving way in that like if we were to give them something that's verifiable as like the absolute the absolute perfect childhood right uh nothing ever went wrong, they didn't want or need anything all their needs were met you know, perfect ratio of nature and nurture, or whatever, um, they would still emerge into adulthood with childhood trauma. And so I wonder, um, to what extent do you agree with that? Because I, I when I talk about trauma, it, it, it's, it's understood that trauma is relative in our natural intuitions. Like you said, you know, um, your parents were mean to you is one thing, you were sexually assaulted is as another. These things aren't equal, but to the person that is traumatized, there is still damage inflicted to them. Um, so, so I wonder your opinion of like, or what your input on like, no matter what you do, you're going to emerge into adulthood at, with some form of trauma. Like, how accurate is that?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. Um, you know. Tr- trauma in the most general sense trauma is just the uh that which and this is what ended up being the psychoanalytic definition to try and get around this external reality internal fantasy conflict is trauma is whatever that which the system like the apparatus the body and the mind can't process and Therefore, it becomes uh, intolerable or distressing or dangerous. Um, So for children, say if a child has a great life, I'll I'll give an example. I worked with a kid and uh, I didn't do a good job with this kid. I I failed ultimately as a therapist with this kid. Um, Who had a very good life. I won't give details because it would indicate things that, be not good for confidentiality but very rich um came from basically conflict free in the outside world um but he was so disorganized internally and did a lot of self-harm and had to go to an inpatient not not by my i try not to send people to inpatient. you know speaking of focal right Um, (laughs) um You know, I kind of work in an inpatient setting during the day, and I like to think, you know, my job there is to try and make their lives as not miserable as possible. Um, But So I never try to send people there. But he had to go. Um, And my understanding, reflecting on the case as a failure, was like, this kid's conflict was that he had no external conflicts. And he felt so guilty, kind of like first world guilt, first world problems, almost kind of like a white guilt kind of thing. He felt so guilty that his life was so good that he created, in a way, all these problems for himself. So that way he could relieve himself of some of that guilt. Um, so his trauma was having a too milquetoast, too uh, bougie of a life, in a way. And I mean that kind of non-pejoratively. Like he basically had nothing disrupt his development. And then that the difference between his nice bubble and everyone around him made him so self-aware. And I didn't help him deal with that feeling of like, hey, that's probably tough to God, I sound like people are gonna eat me alive. It's tough to have a nice life sometimes, isn't it? But that is what the kid needed to hear to to, to be okay with living where he was at to then actually be, you know, uh, better off. But yeah, trauma is always going to happen because it is just whatever excess of stimulation that the system can't digest or handle. Um, you know, what's traumatic for babies is when they can't latch onto the nipple right away. Or if you don't breastfeed and you give people, if you give your little baby supplement or whatever, it's when it doesn't come through the synthetic nipple, the simulated nipple, in the right way, and the baby dysregulates and starts screaming and crying. So that's traumatic for the baby. That, whether or not that really stays, psychoanalysis will say yes. A lot of other people might say no. But just intuitively, we know we don't want to overstimulate babies. We want to give them actually a lot of comfort. Psychiatrists used to say you should let them cry it out. And then they went back and doubled back on their research and said, "No, that's really bad for kids." Yeah, my my group analyst says uh, up until a certain point, I forget what age you're supposed to give babies whatever they need whenever they need it, and that makes intuitive sense. You know, um, that's what we would do in the wild if we were just regular bipedal mammals with our little infants. Is um, baby's crying? We're gonna figure out how to comfort it. So, so. Long story short, I agree with you.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, it, you know, and the other thing I... So, I I think that someone needs to write a book, and that book needs to be like an operator's manual for the human brain. Um, mm-hmm. Because no one gives you this man, this manual, right? No one tells you, hey, this is how the brain works. So, this little voice inside of your head that, like tells you the four F's, you know, tells you when to fight or flight, feed and fuck. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's also the voice that kind of warns you about uh, imminent danger. It's the the little voice in your head that makes you afraid of a hot stove that tells you, uh, you know, don't go too close to the edge of a tall building or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I wonder to what degree, like, and, and I don't know if you can input any on this question uh, again. this is just off the top of my head here as i'm as we're conversing um it, it seems like the way that the brain just naturally works is that it, it it has to pick out some sort of trauma even if it's not traumatizing like it has to to make in the way that it operates it just has to create that thing so maybe you've never put your hand on a hot stove and that's not the way that you learn to not touch a hot stove, mm-hmm. but yet you still have this sort of voice in your back, of your head that says, Hey, don't, don't touch that hot stove, you know? So I wonder when we talk about, you know, your patient that had the bougie life that his external conflict was that he had no internal conflict or something to that end, you know, like, to what degree is it just the brain doing what the brain does?
0: Yeah. No, that's exactly it. And that gets us back to Freud's drive theory, which is no matter how great your external world is or how safe it is, there are these insistent forces from within your body that push and push and constantly need to have more and more. Um, so, and those are inherited um, just biologically. I'm not a bio realist or any of that mumbo jumbo or bio essentialist, but you know we do have this biological stratum and uh and it is pretty basic um you know we will inherit tendencies to stay away from things that were dangerous to our ancestors you know we see a spotted frog we know oh i should, probably shouldn't probably shouldn't do that, <laughs> I probably shouldn't touch that. <laughs> maybe maybe that's not true maybe they'll run studies and i always think you know uh well the the one I love is uh developmental psychologists and I haven't gone back so maybe they disprove this, but they put a baby on a surface and it looks like to the baby's lack of depth perception, it looks like they're on a, a sheet of glass with like a big drop underneath. Looks like they're over the Grand Canyon. And the baby will stop before the perceived edge and will not go over. So oh, wow. babies have some intuitive, at some point, understanding of 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 falling down and dying. Now, of course, if you put a baby on the edge of a stairs, it doesn't have all the data, and it will fall down the stairs. You cannot <laughs> put your baby. Right, right. You shouldn't put your baby in any of those situations. But the point is, there are some inherited uh, safeguards against self-destruction at an early age. So there's always threat. Threat is, like, baked into us, um, I think, you know as an organism, we have very basic safeguards against keeping what is scary and bad on the outside and keeping what's good and warm and healthy on the inside. Um, And those are innate to an extent. And then they're reinforced by good childcare. You know, babies don't tend to do well left out in the cold. They're going to get sick and die. Babies do well when they're comforted and loved and they're in warm swaths. And, you know, so those are some basic kind of social behaviors that mimic what's like a healthy milieu or healthy system, uh, for a baby. So just baked into that is, uh, is preferences and tendencies towards survival and towards or away from death. Um, so even if you have a great life, there's still that idea of threat there. Um, cause threat comes from inside. So, right. Right. Awesome. So, uh, last question here. Um,
1: and, you know, I, I, we've been talking a little bit about Jill Deleuze and Félix Poirier, mm-hmm. um, and I will leave a link to some Wikipedia articles about that. Cause you know, I, I'm a philosophy nerd, uh, in that I just read and interpret a lot of stuff that way, I read a lot of secondary work. And, um, and so what kind of, uh, I guess what, what kind of in reading *Anti-Oedipus*, uh, a, a work by Deleuze and Guattari, uh, I found that I guess what they're trying to do is pull us out of being ensnared into this what they call the Oedipus trap, um, or at least I think that's what they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems to me there's rejecting the work of Freud as inherently limiting to the potential of psychotherapy. Whereas so much of psychotherapy is based off the Freudian model. So it's it's kind of contradictory. But uh, so I guess the last question I have for you is like, do you find the contributions of Freud to psychotherapy to be relevant to your work as a therapist? And are the contributions of Freud are they really serving the practice of psychotherapy? Or are they inherently limiting, or what's your view on
0: that stuff? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I think, uh, my reading of anti-Oedipus is, um, and I think some people's understanding of it is, you know, it gets kind of, uh, talked about as a critique of Freud and Lacan, but then the joke is, uh, Freud and Lacan kind of make it to the end of the book relatively unscathed. So it's kind of like a Nietzschean, like friendly critique of like, Hmm. like I always picture like Uh, Deleuze and Guattari kind of like elbowing Freud and Lacan in the ribs and be like, come on, you know, most of this stuff is (laughs) bullshit, don't you? And then at the same time, they're using all their concepts. They're just kind of tweaking them and um, reworking them. Uh, You know, the whole critique of the Oedipal complex is genius. Um, It's just, there's one line in there. That they say, like you know, we're not saying the Oedipus complex doesn't exist, or that it doesn't apply to some patients. We're just saying it's not the only model. They're basically saying that it's bad science. So they won't be science guys. They, in their other books, critique royal science and yada yada. But uh, they're saying if you have all these theories, basically Freud's starting with the Oedipal model in advance and then just filtering all of his patients data through the model rather than letting the patient inform the models of thought he uses to interact with the patient um so if i already have this idea that the oedipus complex exists in a hard and fast sense and then you Jules, come lay on my couch i'm already thinking of like uh you talk and i'm already thinking of how i can fit that into my preconceived model that's kind of shitty therapy what i want to do is have as open mind as possible. And that's part of the training of analysis is all your values kind of get analyzed kind of like in an Nietzschean sense. So that way you can really sit with anyone um, and listen and try to understand them and help them where they're stuck. So that's a really good critique that has a very pragmatic function in psychotherapy of like you want to let your patient inform your model so that you can actually help your patient. Um and that's actually better science than having a model in advance. Having a model in advance only works if you can correct it um, by taking in feedback and criticism. and as we talked about earlier, psychoanalysis has a challenge with taking in feedback and criticism because built into it is a mechanism of just deferring criticism as a psychological resistance. So that's the key to that text, I think, which is super applicable and that's why it's a great technique. That's why he uh, they come up with schizoanalysis, which is really just the more creative model of working with a patient. And they say, you know, it's not supposed to replace psychoanalysis. It's just supposed to like subsume it within it. So like psychoanalysis is one set of coordinates you can use to do schizoanalysis. And that's what Felix Quattari did. He would have some patients lay on the couch and talk about stuff and he would make interpretations and suggestions. And he would do regular psychoanalysis up until a point, and then he'd ask them, he'd say, okay, do you want to do something different now? Do you want to try schizoanalysis? So I think, you know, I've been kind of toying with writing a book on and off about uh, just exploring Guattari's actual psychotherapy and, like, his, his contributions to psychoanalysis, because that's one of the great ones right there. Um, <clears throat> as far as, like, how Freud has affected psychotherapy in general, um I mean he's had a hand in uh every big therapy whether you like it or not you know people either um try to separate from Freud and go in the other direction or people try to change Freud or people try to stick to Freud I think his real contributions and his real discoveries are that um you can understand behavior by tracing back someone's internal thought process um someone's story so i i think psychiatry did that to an extent before him but he he really did open up this this uh this path that you can sit with someone learn about how they think about themselves and then suggest differences in whatever way works in that method of thinking, that internal logic, um, to kind of influence someone one way or the other. Um, Other than that, you know, a lot of what psychoanalysis does these days is just pull from other therapeutic models. So it's not always clear if my patient got better because I used the psychoanalytic frame or because I just did all these things that are otherwise intuitive and better studied by other models. But then I just thought I was being Freudian while doing it. Um, so I think he's given the field a lot to work with. I, I guess just, you know, if someone wanted a pull quote, the, the real takeaway from Freud is that, uh, well, he's got a lot. I don't want to get too into Freud. But just that thinking, the way someone's internal consistency of thought works um, has a huge impact on them as a person.
1: Well, that's it for episode 19 of No Easy Answers. Check out the show notes for ways you can join the conversation. We have links to our Reddit, Patreon, and Discord. As always, send your comments, concerns, criticisms, or vitriol to No Easy Answers Podcast at Gmail. No Easy Answers is completely listener supported, so if you have not done so already, please consider becoming a supporter of the podcast by heading to patreon.com forward slash No Easy Answers. Until next time, take care, all my guys, gals, and non binary pals. See ya.